WNYC Studios is brought to you by Zbiotics. Seize the day after a night of drinks with Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink. Zbiotics was invented by PhD scientists to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is most responsible for making you feel crummy the next day. Drink Zbiotics before your first drink, drink responsibly, and you'll wake up refreshed and ready to take on the day. Try it for yourself at zbiotics.com/wnyc and get 15% off your first order when you use WNYC at checkout. That's zbiotics.com/wnyc and use the code WNYC at checkout for 15% off. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's the Brian Lara Show on WNYC. Good morning, everyone. On today's show, we'll take a closer look at Mayor Eric Adams' new proposal for a Department of Sustainable Delivery for New York City. Did you hear about that? Can the mayor and city council work together to tame the Wild West e-bike and moped free-for-all we now have on New York City streets and sidewalks? Can they do it while respecting and supporting the delivery workers, and maybe even making their jobs and their vehicles safer for them. We'll also talk about what should come next after the attack on U.S. troops in Jordan. We'll have our climate story of the week, as we do every Tuesday, and how today's generation of parents raising kids is grappling with the eternal tension over how strict or permissive to be, from Dr. Spock to Dr. Becky. The debate goes on and is taking new forms. Parents will have a guest and take your calls later in the show. But before all that, I would like to invite a few of you to sign up for a short roundtable that we're planning for the show. This would be for some of you who live in the former George Santos Congressional District, where, of course, the special election to replace him is now taking place between Democrat Tom Swasey and Republican Mozzie Pillip. You know who you are in those parts of Northeast Queens, the North Shore of Nassau County, and a few other Nassau towns, we're hoping to put together a small group of you who are politically diverse to participate in a half-hour roundtable on the show on Monday, February 12th, the day before Election Day. Here's what we're looking for. Voters who are definitely for Tom Swasey, definitely for Mozzie Pillip, and some of you who are undecided as of now. What will we do in this roundtable? We will give you a chance to talk a little bit about the candidates, but more about the issues that are important to you in deciding on who you would like to represent you in Congress right now. We'll talk a lot about the issues, the quality of life in your district, how that pertains to what you want from the federal government, which is, of course, what this election is. It's a federal election. This is not county executive. This is not city council. So if you're interested in being considered for the February 12th roundtable. Again, we're looking for voters who are definitely Tom Swasey, definitely Mozzie Pillip, and definitely some of you who are undecided as of now, undecided, especially encouraged to apply. Um, And here's what we want you to do in advance of February 12th. Please go to wnyc.org slash swing district voters and you'll see a short form you can fill out. Again, that's wnyc.org slash swing district voters. If you live in the former Santos district and you would like the opportunity 
to be on a roundtable on the show on February 12th. The deadline to apply is the end of the day this Friday, February 2nd, end of the day this Friday. Go take a look and see if you want to try to sign up for it at wnyc.org slash swing district voters. Now, the attack in Jordan that killed three Americans and wounded dozens more raises a number of questions. One of them is, did you know we had U.S. troops in Jordan? Did you know that they were part of something called Operation Inherent Resolve? What? Who ever heard of that? Most Americans have not, and I'm sure Congress, not sure if Congress ever debated or explicitly authorized it. So how militarily involved in the Middle East should the United States be? Not just in terms of military aid to countries there the U.S. wants to support, that's one thing, but how militarily involved with American bodies and American blood and why? Most Americans probably thought the Iraq War and ISIS uh, war periods were over. Next question. Should the United States be withdrawing all its support for the United Nations Relief Agency for Palestinian refugees? Some of its workers have been found to have been involved in the October 7th attack on Israel. You've probably heard that story the last few days. But the agency employs thousands of people and is helping ease a real humanitarian crisis affecting millions of people. Um, A possible analogy, we'll discuss this later, there are no perfect analogies, But what if the NYPD was found to have some bad apples committing abuse? Would we suspend funding for the whole police department or prosecute those individuals and look to see what systemic changes are needed? Different countries are answering the question about UNRWA funding in different ways. And yet another question, can the United States and Qatar get Israel and Hamas to yes on a new ceasefire for hostages plan, or even a longer-term peace plan. We keep hearing they're close. How can they close the deal? All these tough questions show it's been another eventful few days for the people who actually live in the Middle East and that the U.S. is its eyeballs in it. With us now, Fred Kaplan, the military and global affairs columnist for Slate, who writes their column called War Stories and is author of books, including The Bomb, Presidents, Generals, and the Secret History of Nuclear War. Hi, Fred. Welcome back to WNYC. Hi. Always good to be here. Let's take the attack on U.S. troops in Jordan first. Can you explain why the U.S. has military personnel in Jordan? A lot of listeners probably didn't realize we did. Well, we're talking about <clears throat> two or three hundred. I mean, really, not very many. It's along. If you look at a map, it's it's on the northeastern corner of Jordan, which is very close to Iraq and Syria. Uh, this has been a favorite route for ISIS when ISIS was a big deal. It's not a big deal anymore, but it's still a deal. And other kinds of smuggling. Uh, it's mainly a deterrent operation. They don't get involved in a lot of combat operations. They have absolutely nothing to do with the war going on in Gaza right now. Uh, <clears throat> but yeah, they're they're exposed, uh, just like anybody else in the region is at this point. Yeah. I mean, the U.S. supposedly withdrew from Iraq, ending the U.S. war there back in 2011. Then ISIS surged, and the U.S. decided to keep troops after all or send more. Mm -hmm. Then most Americans thought the ISIS era had also basically ended with military victories against them. Certainly Donald Trump is going around and say, 
saying, I destroyed ISIS. So so I guess from what you said in your first answer, that assumption is wrong. We're still there fighting ISIS. Uh, we're not fighting ISIS, uh, but we're the, the idea is that preventing a resurgence of ISIS. And by the way, it's not like we're there secretly. We're, we're there with the with the approval and even uh, uh, desire of the host governments. Now, there's a lot of pressure in Iraq now for all the U.S. troops to leave. There are a couple of thousand. Uh, so, you know, whether that happens. Right. But, but, you know, you, you raised the question early on, you know, should we even be in the Middle East at all? And, you know, Brian, you, you know, you remember the one, the one memorable line from The Godfather Part Three is when Michael Corleone has, he's wanted to go legitimate, and but he keeps getting in, and he says, they keep pulling me back in. They keep mm. pulling me back in. Yeah. It's what the Middle East is. What, during, during the transition uh, of the Biden administration, I was talking with a senior advisor who later became a senior official. He's not there now, but he was. And I said, what, what are the priorities for, for the foreign policy? You know, what, what areas? And he said, well, number one, Asia-Pacific, number two, Europe, number three, South America, mm -hmm. and number four, the Middle East. I mean, every president in our lifetimes, practically, has wanted to get out of the Middle East. So, uh, but so just, on whose behalf do we have those troops there? One could argue that U.S. interests are not actually at stake in Iraq or Syria, anymore, or Jordan, except for troops that we continue to station there who are just protecting themselves, not any other Americans or American assets? Or would that be wrong as Washington sees it? Well, you know, but then what happens when traffic gets choked off in the Red Sea and this affects 20% of, of U.S. maritime traffic and prices start to go up? Or what happens when Something like Al Qaeda is allowed to to you know percolate, and then terrorist strikes happen in Paris or Berlin or New York. Um, <clears throat> I, I you know I I uh, the, the guy who told me about Middle East being number four was in fact a Middle East expert. Everybody wants to get out, but when we start to get out, bad things happen. Now you could say. The U.S. should just get out of the world. And if you take that position, uh, yeah, the Middle East is a good place to start getting out of. But, <clears throat> you know, the, it's if you want to remain a major power, it's just hard to, to do that. Right. Yeah. And, you know, it gets into perennial debates about why remain a major power or mm -hmm. what remaining a major power means and in support of what or who. I mean, as a thought experiment, and I guess you just kind of answered the question, at least as it pertains to the shipping in the Red Sea, though one could say, well, go down around the Horn of Africa and it'll cost... Yeah, which they're doing now, yeah. I know, which will cost a little more because it's a longer shipping route, but... What, you know, what do experts believe would happen as a thought experiment if the U.S. just said before this attack, let's say before October 7th, okay, we're done here. The Middle East has lots mm -hmm. of wars going on, Arab versus Arab, Iranian versus Arab, Sunnis versus Shiites, Israelis and Palestinians versus each other. But there is no U.S. interest here 
in terms of direct military involvement were done. As a thought experiment, what might the range of consequences have been or not? You know, maybe um, there would be less um, reason for a group like ISIS to try to attack inside the United States because that hasn't been happening much anyway in recent years. Um, you know, if we weren't involved in the Middle East, even even al-Qaeda, not to defend September 11th in any way, uh, but they said that was a response to the U.S. continuing to keep troops in Saudi Arabia after right. the first Gulf War for a decade. <clears throat> right. <clears throat> no, it's true. That is what they said. Uh, well, you know, the, the, in the long run, this might end up happening. I remember about a year ago, when China uh, got in and and sat down with Iran and Saudi Arabia and got them to restore diplomatic relations with each other. Uh, That was about all, but that wasn't trivial. And there were a lot of commentators who said, oh no, China is displacing the United States in the Middle East. And my reaction was to say, fine, let them. Uh, let them discover the dark side of being a great power. <laughs> right. uh, let them get involved in trying to solve the problems in the Middle East. I mean, one problem, this is in the Middle East, in Europe, Asia. The, the fact is, at least for the foreseeable future, if the United States pulled out of these places, the countries there would not be able to get their act together. I, I mean, the EU is pretty strong, but if if Donald Trump said we're pulling out of NATO, uh, if Russia attacks Poland, we're not going to do anything about it, it would take several years for Europe to erect a, a military command with sufficient forces to, to, to deter that, that yeah. kind of act. Same thing in Asia, same thing in terms of diplomatic stuff in the Middle East. It's, it's, they've gotten used to America coming in and solving things or trying to. Uh, they've let their own domestic and regional squabbles uh, go on, thinking that they'll be rescued in the end. Uh, yeah, maybe maybe they need to be slapped into a, a you know, say the hol- your holiday from history is over. Yeah, uh, You have to deal with these problems yourself. <clears throat> and maybe that's good, but then what, what do you do for the next five or ten years right. while they, I, while I they transition to this? I guess that argument is sort of um, the argument to let them deal with their own problems. It's sort of a point where the isolationists on the right and the isolationists on the left meet. Uh, those yeah. on the left say the U.S. is getting over on the rest of the world being so dominant, the isolations on the right say the rest of the world is getting over on us hmm. by having us do their their work for them and take their risk for them. Listeners, what do you want the U.S. to do in response to the attack that killed three American service members and wounded dozens of others in Jordan over the weekend? And what do you want direct U.S. military involvement to be in the Middle East overall? 212-433-WNYC, 212 Nine six nine two. Call or text, or you can ask a question, kind of you know an informational question of Fred Kaplan, who writes the War Stories column for Slate. Two one two four three three, WNYC. Call or text. As to who staged the attack, Fred, I keep hearing them referred to as 
an umbrella group for Iranian proxy militias, an umbrella group for Iranian proxy militias. Wouldn't the umbrella group for Iranian proxy militias be Iran? <laughs> yeah, I don't. They, there are some very strange, cliched phrases going out, going on now, and yeah, that's one of them. I, I think it's not quite clear exactly who did it, and so they come up with these. Uh, it's like when your doctor tells you you have an endogenous problem. I mean, it's caused by something they just don't know what. Mm. Uh, they will find out soon enough. Uh, and they seem to be more sophisticated than than people thought. Remember back 20 years ago when we developed the armed drone and we thought, oh, this will save us. This will be the new weapon, and we're the only ones who know how to do this. Well, you know, <laughs> we're not the only ones who know how to do this right, anymore. Because this was a drone attack. This was a drone attack, and not only that. Now, it's unclear yet whether this was a deliberate tactic or whether it was just happenstance. But the reason why it got through air defenses was that it was following quite closely a returning U.S. surveillance drone. And therefore, the radar didn't detect the separate armed drone from... Now, I'm a little puzzled by this because there are what are called IFF codes, uh, identification of friend or foe codes, which are highly secretive and... It tells it, it allows, you know, the the manners of air defense systems, for example, to know whether a, a an airplane or drone coming in is one of ours or or the enemy, and it should have been detectable. It should have been dis- distinctive. I, I don't know why it wasn't, but but anyway, that's why it got through. And it was just just mm-hmm. an accident of timing, or had they figured out had drones at hard surveillance drones come in and out at a set time? Were they detecting this? Did they decide deliberately to go in after it so that so that it would be hidden? Uh, I don't know, but it's it well either way it shows that there are there's more tactical cleverness going on from some of these militias which we've often stereotyped as ragtag militias than than uh, than we should feel comfortable with. They're much more sophisticated sometimes than we think they are in this country. Did Iran tell this militia to do this? Iran says they did not. Uh, this is what is making a response difficult. Iran has been playing this game for several years now, even before October 7th. They have this network of proxies. Now, some of these proxies really are just kind of agents of Iran. And some of them have their own agendas and they, they turn to Iran for, for assistance. But they don't necessarily do what Iran wants them to do or don't do what Iran does not want them to do. Iran has said they had nothing to do with this attack. They also said that, that Hamas uh, was on its own when they did October 7th. Both of these claims might be true. At the same time, they did supply both of these groups with arms, with training. Uh, you know, th- there are uh, re- Republican re- Revolutionary Guard uh, officers advising these groups out in Iraq and, and so forth. Uh, it's unclear whether they were ever in, in Gaza advising Hamas directly. Somebody built these tunnels. I mean, I don't think... Hamas can do that by itself, uh, the materials for it. So 
the question in terms of there are some people saying, oh, okay, this is it. We need to go in and attack Iran directly. The problem with that, we have to recall certain facts. For example, Iran is three times larger than Iraq. And remember when we thought that Iraq would be a cakewalk. Uh, it's much more heavily armed. It's much more uh, literate. And while large segments of the Iranian population actually like the United States and hate their own government, the worst thing that you can do about that is to invade Iran. Uh, there's memories of, of the U.S. and Britain overthrowing the last democratically elected government in, in Iran in 1953. Uh, they have a Mossadegh, his name is Mossadegh. They have a complex about this. Uh, you start invading Iran, you're going to reactivate that. You're going to wind, the the, wind up with the Islamic Revolution that they got in 1979, yeah. chanting death to America. So, so on what the smartest response is to the attack, and you mentioned some members of Congress who want to attack inside Iran. I'm going to play a clip from Morning Edition today of a Republican congressman who didn't quite say that, but I want you to hear what he did say. This is Republican Congressman Mike Waltz of Florida, who is arguing not quite to attack inside Iran, but to attack Iranian assets of some kind directly, rather than just hit back at the proxy militias. Here's a few seconds of Congressman Waltz. That part of the world, uh, they respect strength, and they understand consequences. And as long as they believe there's not going to be serious consequences, then they're going to push further. So I think the administration has to reverse course and hit back in a way that Iran cares about. So, Fred, I wonder if you have a take on the politics of this, because uh, I mentioned the right-wing isolationists. Here's a right-wing interventionist, Republican Congressman Waltz. I, I I wonder, you know, there's a Steve Bannon camp uh, that Donald Trump often articulates the views of that says, what are we doing being the policemen of the world, um, engaging in foreign adventurous wars, right? This is the anti-George W. Bush wing of the Republican Party, wing of the Republican Party. And, uh, you know, and they use that to argue against funding Ukraine, maybe they're really just pro-Putin. Um, but here, here's a test for that wing of the right wing on how much they want the U.S. to continue to get more involved militarily and show its strength or say, no, we're going to spend our assets on Americans. That's the America first argument. Yeah. <clears throat> well, you're certainly right about the hypocrisy there. Uh, I think, though, that leaving aside his uh, sort of cliched rhetoric, he's making a point. Uh, you know, Iran said this morning, oh, this really needs to be solved by diplomacy. And, and you know, I'm thinking, oh, now you say that, you know. Uh, I think, uh, and, you know, I don't have access to intelligence that would allow me to get specific about this, but I think something that Iran values does have to be attacked. I think it it can't be just something belonging to the militias. Can't just be destroying some outpost of of a, of a proxy militia. Why? At the at the same time, at the same time, I think pressure for diplomacy really does have to be stepped up on all sides. You know, Qatar. Qatar is is you know 
delicately negotiating with Hamas over a peace deal. You know, Qatar, President Biden declared Qatar a non-NATO, a major non-NATO ally. The Fifth Fleet is in Qatar, and yet they are the leading ally of, of Hamas. Hamas leaders live in splendid houses in Qatar. They need to start pressuring these people, and we need to start pressuring Qatar, and we need to start pressuring uh, Israel as well. I mean, I understand the reluctance of Biden for various reasons to, you know, put a hold on on arms supplies to Israel. However, you know, several weeks ago, maybe a couple of months ago, when the settlers in the West Bank, who are very different from the people who are living on near the Gazan border in Israel proper, started, you know, going around and killing Palestinians in the West Bank, burning down their houses, their olive trees, and so forth. And Biden put a sanction on some of those settlers and put pressure on Netanyahu to do something about it, and he did nothing about it. There was a, a, a jamboree just yesterday uh, in Jerusalem with the, the far, far right members of Netanyahu's uh, coalition uh, calling for a reoccupation of Gaza. The, the, you know, these people have to be sanctioned internally and externally. Uh, it, it creates an impression that this is what Israel really wants, when in fact these people are a very small minority of, of Israel. They, it, it's, there has to be, I don't know whether temporary, permanent, call it what you will, but the war has to stop. Uh, a lot of these conflicts, for example, the one that happened yesterday against the U.S. troops in Jordan, have nothing to do with what's going on uh, in, uh, in in Gaza and Israel, but it's all merging. It's all smushing into each other. They all intensify one another. You know, somebody said, uh, somebody wrote an article the other day, I, I'm sorry, I forget who, that the various battles of World War II that, that coalesced into World War II started out as local and regional conflicts. It really has to be brought to an end uh, and very quickly. You know, Hezbollah is, is launching about a dozen missiles a day into Israel, uh, including into Tel Aviv. Uh, even fairly moderate officers in Israel are saying we've got to go after Hezbollah to the north as well as Hamas to the south. Uh, you know, it, it's just this thing is going to wind out of control. And so, yeah, I think something you can't just have militias, you know, launching and, and uh, you know, the, the militias of Iran have, have, have fired 165 rockets or missiles or drones at U.S. forces in the Middle East since October 7th. That cannot be allowed to continue, and yet whatever we do in response militarily has to be attached very powerfully and urgently to a, a diplomatic uh, offensive, and not just by us, but also in, including getting Egypt, Saudi Arabia involved. They, they've, you know, they've been doing nothing for decades, lending rhetorical support to the Palestinians, doing nothing to help them materially. You know, the wall separating Gaza from Egypt. Have you seen pictures of this? I mean, you know, it's about 40 feet high with, with multiple layers of, of barbed wire. They, they, want, they, they don't want, they want 
they want Palestinians to come into the Sinai even less than Israel wants Palestinians to come into Israel. Before October 7th, there were 15,000 Gazans entering Israel every day with work permits. So, I mean, they have to get involved in this thing, and they, they, they have to step up. And, and it's a courageous act because their own people are actually more radical than they are. I'm talking about Saudis in particular. Uh, but they have to step up and, uh, and, and start supplying some stability, uh, which, which they've always shirked in, in places like Gaza and, and the surrounding areas. It, everybody has to, to, to get involved and take some responsibility for what's about to, to unwind into a serious we're, regional war. We're getting a lot of text messages with various points of view. One that kind of echoes part of what you were just saying, why doesn't Egypt get involved and clear its own backyard? It's their canal. No, why the U.S.? Uh, another one writes, the, uh, the goal of the military for the United States is only to continue to perpetuate the military-industrial con- uh, complex. Hence, blowback is a precondition and an expected response to the U.S., and goes on from there. Um, another one, Mr. Kaplan says U.S. troops in Jordan, etc., are not fighting. Did he misspeak? American forces are in continual engagement, especially special operators. And please describe U.S. troops' role in protecting oil fields in Syria that fund so-called friendlies. Another one, um, the U.S. has to behave and not escalate the situation. Another listener writes simply, bomb Iran. Uh, and another one writes, I, where did it go? Uh, I noticed all three of the slain service members were black. Perhaps we need to bring back compulsory military service for all Americans. So risk of military deployments are more widely shared across all subsets of the U.S. population. And with that um, array of responses. We're going to take a short break and continue with Fred Kaplan, take some of your phone calls, and talk about some of the aspects um, in addition to the one we've just been describing, the attack in Jordan and the context for that. Fred wrote an article about how there is almost an Israel-Hamas peace plan on the table. The only obstacle is both sides haven't accepted it. Stay with us. Brian Lehrer on WNYC as we continue with Slate's War Stories columnist Fred Kaplan on developments in the Middle East in recent days. I do want to get to this potential uh, short-term ceasefire for hostages plan and longer-term peace plan for Israel and Hamas for Israelis and Palestinians uh, that are being talked about, at least by the United States and Qatar. But we're getting so many calls in response to the stretch of conversation about what to do in response to the um, attack that killed three three U.S. service members and injured dozens of others in Jordan that I want to take some of those calls in respect to listeners. Angela in East Rockaway, you're on WNYC. Hi, Angela. Hi. Um, my opinion is um, that I, I feel that whatever response we have uh, to this, these murders, it has to be a very slow, calculated, and deliberate decision. I don't think we should be um, influenced 
by Republican right-wing people saying, go after them, go after them. I think that we really have to be very, very careful. It's a, it's, as as um, your, your guest said, it's really a, 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 a perfect storm happening in the Middle East right now. And I think that the United States has to use caution and be very deliberate and very careful on whatever we do. I do think it does require a response. But I, I hope that it's thoroughly investigated and we choose the best option. I think President Biden has a lot on his plate right now, and it's just getting, you know, it's just getting worse. So I think um, that we have to be very deliberate. And I do trust the Biden administration to do the right thing. Angela, thank you very much. Janet in Manhattan, you're on WNYC. Hi, Janet. Oh, hi. This is a, a broader, uh, more general philosophical political question than one of the immediate situation. I've always wanted to ask Mr. Kaplan, what is his best opinion of why the conservatives, the so-called originalists, are so okay with every war we have fought since World War II, where not a single one of them was ever declared by Congress, and the Constitution is very clear on that. It leaves no doubt Congress will have the power to declare war. Why are the Republicans, conservatives, originalists, uh, so okay with it, with all the wars we've been in, including this one. Fred, you can answer mm. that. Yeah, right. Do you have another half hour or so? <laughs> uh, it's not just the Republicans. Uh, I mean, look, in 1974, in the middle of the Vietnam War, Congress passed the War Powers Act, which, you know, the, the, con the Constitution is actually very ambiguous about this. Uh, Article One gives the, the the president immense powers to behave, to act internationally. Article Two gives powers of the of the purse and and control over military budget to Congress. War Powers Act said no, you have to if you want to put troops in someplace, you have to come certify to us. We get to vote on it after sixty days, and at that time, uh, Congress stepped in a couple of times and did it. But that was it. They haven't ever since uh, because they don't want to take responsibility for it if things go down. Everybody remembers when Obama kept saying red line, red line, red line, and then Syria crossed the red line using chemical weapons uh, against its own people. What people don't remember is that Obama said, okay, here's why, here's all the reasons why I'm I should do something, but I don't want to act alone. I think Congress needs to come in with me, and Congress did not. So, I mean, it was a bit of a cop, and, and, and I know that they genuinely lobbied Congress to come in on it. It wasn't just kind of, you know, a, a shirking yeah. of, of their response. So Congress has never wanted to take responsibility. They do want to yell at Whoever, pre whichever president of whatever party is in office when things go down, yeah, but, not but take they, responsibility. they do not want to and take it, responsibility. And it's true that right now it's both parties. I mean, we had a similar conversation last week when, you know, it wasn't the attack on the U.S. base in Jordan yet, but it was the U.S. getting directly militarily involved with the Houthis from Yemen over their attacks on shipping in the Red Sea. And I asked Democratic Congresswoman Mikey Sherrill of New Jersey, Navy veteran, Armed Services Committee member, uh, don't you want to take a vote to authorize this or not 
before the U.S. gets any deeper into a war with the Houthis. And, well, you know, maybe eventually we'd have to do this, but the Biden administration is within its right. So uh, it, you know, happens on both sides of the aisle. The the Houthis, they are well within their rights. I mean, legislation and international law going back to the 1700s about piracy. About, about, about going after Houthis for, for obstructing traffic on the Red Sea. That's that's pretty unambiguous, I think. Edmund in Westchester. You're on WNYC. Hi, Edmund. Hello. Edmund, um, are you there? We've been Hi. talking a little bit about the um, um, military-industrial complex as uh, and feeding it as uh, something that's bad, and that's been, I guess, the traditional way of thinking about it. But um, kind of uh, a little bit related to the uh, uh, third godfather um, you know, let's acknowledge then that we're going to continually be pulled into it, and let's perhaps acknowledge that we're pretty good at it. Um, is there a way of perhaps kind of re- reframing it a little bit so that um, whatever the negatives are, we can manage them better and perhaps benefit more from the positives? Well, so, Edmund, let me ask you a follow question. First of all, the experience of the United States since 9-11 uh, might raise a question as to whether we're really very good at it. And and also, what about the military-industrial complex do you want to reframe as a positive? I think, and Fred can get in on this if he wants, but the, the traditional negative is that it's sort of a self-perpetuating interest group. A lot of military contractors who want big um, bucks contracts from the federal government, they push us toward more war. The military itself is bent toward more war, not less. That may have actually changed in the last generation, but traditionally that's what it is. Uh, And so we have to look at the military contractors and the Pentagon itself, the generals, as sort of an interest group that might be blind to important realities when deciding what to do. Edmund, if you wanted to come back, I'm giving you one shot. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. I think that um, that the... The issue is that we're, 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 always, we're always hedging. We're always in this in-between, this no-man's land of having to manage the politics, um, the, for lack of a better word, like um, uh, what it means for uh, democracy, but then also um, having to do some pretty ugly things at times um, or things that are not, that are difficult. Let's just call it difficult. And, um, and so if there's a better way of acknowledging our position, acknowledging our role, then maybe we could be more clear in, in how we execute. Because the, the in-between just kind of gets us in circles and otherwise uh, has us do these half measures that keep us where we are. Mm-hmm. Um, Edmund, I'm going to leave it there. Thank you very much. One more. Sonny in Bed-Stuy. You're on WNYC. Hi, Sonny. Hi. Can you hear me? Yep. Um, yeah, I'm I'm calling because... I'm I'm just surprised that there isn't more of a conversation around why the U.S. isn't um, pulling aid for that's supporting the genocide in Gaza right now. Um, both the attacks in Jordan and the Houthis have very clearly said that this is in retaliation for supporting a genocide in which 30,000 people have died, almost 400 people in the West Bank. And I mean, I'm just also surprised that this 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 reporter, this journalist that you have is like justifying all these wars and, and pretending like the U.S. goes there and, and fixes things. And, oh, what if we pull out? And um, 
and, and leave them to fix their own problems. And the, I think this conversation and these attacks and all the activity in the Red Sea is so centrally and so obviously in response to this genocide and to the U.S.'s full support and perpetuation of it. And it be acknowledge that. And that actually leads us to our next topic with Fred. And I'll acknowledge, as I always do, when people say genocide, that people are very much uh, on various sides of whether that word actually applies. But nonetheless, Fred, uh, the numbers that the caller is citing are generally accepted and broadly accepted. So was this attack part of the Israel-Hamas war, a way for Iran on behalf of Palestinians or this proxy group to punish the U.S. for continuing to fund Israel with no consequences, even while mouthing support for more restraint? Um, the Houthis say that's why they're doing their attacks in the Red Sea. Well, as I say, actually, the one in Jordan was, they say, in, in retaliation to an attack on some re Revolutionary Guard officers in Iraq, uh, which was separate from what's going on in Gaza. Uh, the Houthis say that they're just trying to uh, block is Israeli traffic through the Red Sea. I looked at the records of... Half of the ships that uh, that had been attacked uh, as of a few weeks ago, 13 out of the 27, and they had nothing to do with Israel, nothing to do with Israel. But I've uh, heard a larger framing of that, that the Houthis' point is as long as Israel is committing uh, this many killings in Gaza, whether we call it genocide or not, that... They're not going to stand for business as usual in the Red well, Sea. They don't have to be Israeli ships. Well, some people should take a look at what the Houthis are doing in business as usual in, in Yemen. But look, the point is, whether it's genuine or not, they say that it is. And as I said, that's one reason among many that there really has to be a ceasefire uh, and an exchange of hostages and prisoners very, very quickly uh, before this thing really spins out of control. And so let me just say, to frame this final stretch of the conversation, that you wrote an article last week on Slate called, There's a Real Plan for Ending the War in Gaza, But Israel and Hamas Actually Have to Take It. You wrote that last Monday, and so much has happened since then. So I'll ask, is there still a real plan for ending the war in Gaza? Yeah, I've read varying versions of it since then. But, but generally speaking, it involves... Uh, a truce of, I, I've read six weeks, I've read two months, uh, I've read four months, during which in, in, in a few stages, uh, hostages are freed, you know, beginning with, with women, uh, then uh, older men, and then men of a combat age whom, you know, the, uh, Hamas regards as soldiers, whether they are or not an exchange for a certain number, hundreds or thousands of prisoners. Uh, the big hang-up now, I'm, I, what I read anyway, is that uh, whether this ceasefire is a temporary thing, which is what Israel wants, or permanent, which is what Hamas wants. Uh, I think the Biden administration's hope in doing the first prisoner hostage exchange about a month or so ago was that the temporary ceasefire would spill over into an extension, 
then another extension, then another extension, and that there would be time during this lapse in time, uh, some kind of diplomatic deal for a longer-term solution uh, could happen. So the question, and this is where things get difficult on, on all sides, Netanyahu has a very slender hold on power in Israel. If, if three people left his government, his government would, would collapse and there would have to be new elections and he would certainly lose. His party would lose. Uh, there are at least a dozen people in the right wing of his coalition who have said that they will leave the government if Netanyahu takes any steps toward a ceasefire like this. Now, are they bluffing? They might be because these guys are not going to get into another government. Well, in fact, I I see a breaking news story. This Uh is from the AP from just 10 minutes ago. It says Netanyahu speaking at an event in the West Bank denied reports of a possible ceasefire deal to end the war in Gaza and repeated his vow to keep fighting until absolute victory over Hamas. Quote, we will not end this war without achieving all of our goals. So, you know, sometimes people say, um, you know, people deny reports of a deal until there's a deal. Um, That's a pretty strong denial, though. He's saying he's not going to take part in it. And so, really, you know, even the other day, Chuck Schumer, who is as pro-Israel a senator as I can think of, said we have to start thinking about whether to link arms supplies to Israel to their human rights record and desire for peace. And I think it, it's well. How probably many Palestinians time. have to die in Gaza? Yeah, no, that's a good question too. Before uh, they do that, and does no, Biden and actually, does Biden ever feel like a Netanyahu patsy? You know, Biden stands against the way they're doing the war. They're certainly not standing with Hamas in any way in the Biden administration, but they're standing against the way Israel is fighting the war. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Biden has said bombing indiscriminately. They're yeah. trying to push for these hostage for um, ceasefire deals, which the hostage families want too. There are a lot of demonstrations in Israel that we don't hear about much in this country. I I guess my final question, when does Biden come to feel like he's Netanyahu's patsy unless there are some consequences? Well, you know, when he first, right after October 7th, I think he played a shrewd game. I mean, he, his first reaction was to hug Netanyahu. And, you know, the two have not gotten along in many years. I mean, they've known each other for a long time. There's some bristling hostility, but still he embraced Netanyahu. He said, just spoke nothing but favorable for Israel. And what that was about, I think he had to embrace them before then leveraging them to do certain things. And I think you have to give him some credit. I think without Biden's pressure, there would not have been any humanitarian corridors. There would not have been that initial hostage for prisoners trade. Uh, I think the bombing would be much more severe than it's been. But yeah, at some point, yeah, he played a clever game. I'm going to embrace Israel and then pressure them to do certain things. And I think some people in, in Netanyahu's emergency war cabinet, especially Garantz, are, are keen to do that. But Netanyahu is not. And so the tactic has not worked because you have uh, a guy in Bibi Netanyahu who is just recalcitrant, whether for his own ideology or because he thinks that 
the war, as long as the war goes on, he remains in power because of the setting up of this emergency war cabinet. But yeah, I think, <clears throat> and I, there are people around Biden who have thought this for a while, but I think he now has to realize this hasn't worked. Uh, we have to start putting on the pressure, but I think this has to be done in conjunction with Qatar and Cairo putting the pressure on, on Hamas as well. It has to be right. both sides. We will see what happens next. Listeners, thank you for your many calls and texts with multiple points of view. We thank Fred Kaplan, the War Stories columnist for Slate. Fred, thanks a lot. Sure, anytime.